It's really good to be here this morning. I, I thought I would start out on a Sunday morning by showing you a couple of my biggest idols in life, just as an act of self-confession here. So this is a picture of my favorite little boy in the whole world. That's my, son, my four-year-old son, Timmy, and he's sitting in my favorite car in the whole world, the 1978 Chevy Corvette. So this is a car that a few years ago my dad and I bought. We've been talking about it for a long time, and we finally pulled the trigger on it. And, you know, we both like it because it's, I mean, it's got the big swooping fenders, you know, and it's got the T-top, so on a sunny day it's a great car to drive. But I think my dad was particularly drawn to a 1978 Corvette because that's the year he and my mom got married. And I kind of wonder if... You know, back in the day when they were driving around, just newly married, if he saw cars like this on the road and he said, oh, you know, someday I think I'm going to drive a car like that. So I think he's drawn to the 78 because of that. As, as we've owned the car and I've had a chance to learn more about it and research about it and learn more about the era in which it was built, I, I discovered that 1978 isn't just a great, you know, big year for my family it was actually a really pivotal year for the company that makes Corvettes, General Motors. Okay, so 1978, this is the kind of advertisement you would have seen in 1978, the, the new Chevrolet, America's favorite car. And by many measures, that was true. In 1978, General Motors was America's largest employer. They employed 850,000 people in 1978. This was America's big company. But what's interesting is in the next four decades after 1978, General Motors shed three out of every four of its workers. Today, General Motors employs 181,000 people. Massive, nearly 80% decline in employees over that four-decade span. Now, I mean, it's not as though General Motors disappeared and nobody else grew up in its place. Of course, many companies over that time period grew up famous names that we know now that have ascended to the head of the U.S. economy. But these companies look just a little bit different than General Motors. So if you, if you just do a comparison, let's say, of General Motors and Google, okay? 1978, General Motors in today's dollars made a profit of $12 billion in 1978. And again, they did that with 850,000 employees. 35 years later, fast forward to Google, Google also made a profit in 2013 of $12 billion. But they did it with just 45,000 workers. A pretty big difference there. Well, that's interesting that you say the word terrible, Claudette. I think that's exactly what we want to talk about today. Now, look, you might say, you might say, well, I don't think it's quite fair to compare a, a, a car company to an internet search engine company. They're two different businesses, right? And I'd say, 
yeah, that was true until Google started making self-driving cars. Now, they don't manufacture them the way that GM does, but they have the, you know, if you, if you ask almost anybody, they have the leading self-driving technology in the marketplace. And I think it's worth just thinking about this for a second. We live in a world today where, and this would have been total, of course it would have been totally incomprehensible in 1978, but we live in a world today where General Motors, maybe their biggest competitive threat is a search engine company. That's astonishing. That's totally unpredictable. So one thing I think we have to recognize at the outset of this conversation in entrepreneurship and identity is that technological innovation is changing the business landscape. That's a no-brainer. Everybody knows that. And it's changing the way we work. Here's, just a, here's kind of expanding the General, Mo, the General Motors point just a little bit. If you look at manufacturing output and employment in the United States. So this, is, this graph is a little complicated but my t- for my taste, but there's basically two things you need to see. Here's when that Corvette was made, and here's where manufacturing employment has gone since. Okay, that's General Motors from 850,000 down to 181,000. But over the same period of time, so this is a 35% drop in manufacturing employment in the U.S. Over the same time, though, manufacturing output has more than doubled. So it's not the case that we're not making stuff anymore. We're making a lot in the United States. It just takes way fewer people to do it now than it did 40 years ago. So that's kind of this macro picture of this more micro case of General Motors. But what's interesting is if you ask the guys who study this stuff, and they may be right, they may be wrong, but if you ask the guys who look at this stuff and try to project out, they say this is not going to stop. Okay, so if you talk to the guys, there's some guys at Oxford University that have done some research on this, and what they, what they predict is that 47% of jobs in the U.S., could be automated within the next 20 years. So that, that trend line, at least of the jobs we've had, could keep moving in that direction. Okay, that's the guys at Oxford. Now some guys at McKinsey, the, the consulting firm McKinsey, have also looked at this, and they said, yeah, we agree with that, but we'll just up the ante a little bit. They say that that can happen because of technology that already exists today. So they're not even projecting what, you know, trying to figure out what new technologies come. They're just saying with technology that exists today, if it's applied the way we think it can be applied, we're going to see half of these jobs shed. So this is, you know, so again, I'll go back to Claudette's <laughs> sort of visceral reaction. Sorry, I'm getting in the way here. I'm, I'm uh, not used to having my projector right there. Claudette's visceral reaction. This is, this can look very sobering to us. Um, and what I think it suggests to us, if, if, General Mo- if the story of General Motors and Google are true of what's going on in the world, if the researchers at McKinsey and the researchers at Oxford University are even directionally correct, then what it means is that 
the big companies we've expected to be job-creating machines in our country, that we've leaned on to be job-creating machines in the past, are probably not going to be those job-creating machines in the future. See, you know, when I, when, I, uh, when I left college, it wasn't that long ago, I suppose, but it was, it's, been a, it's been a couple decades now, uh, almost. And uh, when I left college, the whole idea was, how do you find a job? This is probably a tribute. How do you hunt for a job? Where do the jobs exist? Go out and get them. Okay? And what I want to suggest here is I don't think that's going to be the main problem for students coming out of colleges over the next 10 or 20 years. I don't think it's going to be where do I find the job, where do I hunt for the job. I think it's going to be what job do I need to make? What job do I need to create? I don't think the big companies are going to be the job-creating machines. I actually think we're going to be the job-creating machines. Our job is going to be to create our jobs. And that, that is a radical, that's a radical shift. And I think about this, okay, so I think I'm a college professor. I think about this in the context of my students. Here's last year's graduating class from the King's College, okay? These are, the, these are not all of them, some of them. These are students who have been sitting in my classroom, and, you know, for the past... For the past 10 years that I've been teaching, they've, they've largely been millennials. Okay, we all know who the millennials are. That's shifting now to the next generation, Gen Z. So it's these millennials and Gen Z that are in my classroom and that I think increasingly are going to face this dynamic of how do I create my own job? Not where do I hunt for it, but how do I create it? And so I think the question is, if this picture of where the economy is going is right, the question is, are these guys up for it? Can these guys do it? And I, I know this because I've talked to many of you. Uh, I think that uh, we certainly have strong views on the millennials and what they're up for and what they're not up for. And, um, you know, so there's some of us out there, I think, who, who look at these guys and they kind of see that generation of sort of self-absorbed, sheltered, entitled, you know, kind of free-riding off mom and dad's largesse, really, really, you know, I'm sucked into my phone and what, the, what I look like online. We have that kind of impression, and we say, oh, Lord, they're not going to be up for that. Okay, then others of us, and I don't know how many of you are in this room, but I think others of us have a very different view of millennials and Gen Z. I think we look at these guys and say these are, you know, they're the hoodie-wearing, you know, hoverboard-riding, tech-obsessed entrepreneurs of Silicon Valley that are reinventing the world. And they're doing it in some really amazing ways. These guys are, entrepreneurship is in their DNA. So we've got these two pictures, and the question is, well, well, is either one of them more right than and I would say, well, they're young, so a lot can change in the years ahead. But let me show you some of the research that's been done on them and the picture that it's painting of whether they're up for this more entrepreneurial future. And I would say the picture is mixed, but has some features that are kind of concerning. And I think we need to talk about those. So, first of all, millennials 
like the idea of entrepreneurship. They like the idea of entrepreneurship. This is from a, a survey from Ernst & Young. 62%, uh, according to this E&Y survey, have considered starting their own business. Okay, so that might be what's required of them, and indeed they're thinking about starting their own business. And even more, 72% think entrepreneurship is essential for promoting jobs. Okay, so they, they think entrepreneurship is good, they might, they might even want to do it themselves, they say, on this survey. Okay? So you've got this attitude or disposition that seems to be favorably disposed to entrepreneurship. But there's also some interesting data about what millennials actually do. Now, I don't think this data is necessarily conclusive, but I think it's interesting, and it, it requires some thought and attention. So the Federal Reserve Bank of New York did this survey, um, and they found that there's been a 65% decline in the share of people under 30 who own their own business since the late 1980s. 65% decline in the share of people okay, under the age of 30 who own their own business. And they've also found that there's a 12% decline in the share of new entrepreneurs coming from the 20 to 34-year-old age group. This is actually from a Kauffman Foundation study. So this is the New York Federal Reserve. This is a Kauffman uh, Foundation study. So again, I don't think, I think there's a lot of ways you can look at data like this. I'm just giving you a couple data points. And I'm not saying necessarily that it's conclusive. But it's striking. And it, let me just add this, it, it, it pairs with some non-entrepreneurial data we have about Gen Z and about the millennials, but particularly about Gen Z, these, these kids born after 1995, that doesn't speak to their thoughts about life in the marketplace, but just their life in general. So people, so there's, um, people who study Gen Z find that this is a generation that is much safer than their predecessors. Much more risk averse when it comes to just everyday things in life. They, um, they don't want to drive. Gen Z does not care about driving nearly as much as I did. And most of, to the extent you're not Gen Z, you did. I mean, driving was the, the greatest act of liberation at age 16. I was at home in Minnesota talking to my nieces who are now approaching that age about, oh, you're going to start taking driver's ed. My wife and I met in our driver's ed class, if you can believe it. Very Midwestern thing. Uh, and I asked, well, you must be, well, I was joking with her. I said, you might meet your husband in driver's ed. You know, are you excited about that? But I said, are you excited to drive? And they, both of them, I think they're 15 and 14 or 15 and 13, they just looked at me and they said, I don't want to drive. I don't care. I don't, I don't want to drive. What? You don't want, we're in Minnesota. You've got, you got to drive. This is the thing we do. And they said, self-driving cars are going to be here in like three or four years. I don't really care about driving. So Gen Z doesn't care about driving. Um, they don't like to leave the house as much as their predecessors. And I, I'm, gonna, I'm going off the top of my head here, but, but eighth graders in 2000... Eighth graders in the, in the early 2000s went out more with their friends than high school students do today. So eighth graders are more likely to go out than high school students today. They just don't want to get out all that much. Even stats like premarital sex, 
Okay? Uh, this generation, Gen Z, is, is much less likely to encounter the problems that come with that compared to previous generations. Now, in some ways, this is nice. I mean, my kid's not going to be on the road. They're, you know, they're not going to engage. In, you know, this is okay. But it's interesting when you start to pair it with some of this data around, well, just how entrepreneurial are they? I mean, is this becoming a lifestyle that just is not interested in stepping into unknown places? Okay? So, so this, is, um, this is kind of the data we have on these, some of the data we have on these guys. And one of the questions we have to ask then is, well, why? Why don't these guys want to be more entrepreneurial? Why aren't they starting their own businesses? Why aren't they doing new, why aren't they getting out there and creating their own opportunities? And again, I'm speaking in generalities here. Now, some of the answers we get, and these I think are good answers, they're, they're fair answers, I think they're, they're real. Some would say, look, students today have way more student debt than they did 30 years ago. I mean, we're, they're buried under $1.2 trillion in student debt. That's going to hamper entrepreneurial activity. And I think that's probably true. That's probably a factor. We've talked a lot about that. Uh, some will say, look, we've had a, the economy's been growing so slowly for the better part of a decade, and it's very hard to be entrepreneurial and get out and start something new when the economy is growing so slowly. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's part of it. I'm not going to deny either one of those, but I do want to suggest another reason that I think is reported on less often. It's a little more nebulous, but I think it could be, if it's right, a very big factor here with serious implications, and that is millennials today, this younger generation, is much more afraid of failing as entrepreneurs than previous generations. So um, if you go back and you look at 20 to 34, 25 to 34-year-olds, 20 to 34-year-olds in 2001, and you ask them, what's your primary reason for not wanting to start a business? 21% would say, I don't, want, I don't want to fail. Fear of failure is the biggest reason that I don't want to do this. Okay, I get that. I mean, fear of failure is a real thing. If you, if you bounce ahead to 2016, that number's jumped to 40%. You've got 16 points in 15 years afraid of failing. Okay? So you've got this picture of a more risk-averse generation. You've got data to suggest they're actually thinking about being afraid of failing. And then, of course, the, the natural question from there is, why would they be so afraid of failure? So if you've got, the, you've got the decline in entrepreneurship, maybe, you've got this increasing fear of failure, what is it? You know, they may be just correlated. There may be some causation there. If there's some causation there, then I think we want to ask the question, well, why are they so afraid of failing? And I would say this. I think there's a lot of conversation in the public square around are we equipping young people with the skills they need to compete, to work in an economy, the economy that we're entering, this, this economy of more entrepreneurship, of higher skilled work? Are we, are we equipping students with the skills they need for that? Okay, we talk about that all the time. But I would say the question we talk about less is are we equipping young people spiritually to enter a world that requires more entrepreneurship? And I think this is, again, this is a slightly more nebulous question, but I think, 
let me, let me tell you what I observe. Okay, let me, let me tell you what I observe. So I think there's something to this. If you look at the data, if you look at the polling on millennials and Gen Z especially, what you see when it comes to views on the transcendent, on God, the views that they have are basically, uh, I don't think, to an increasing degree, a larger degree than any other generation that we're polling right now, I don't think there's anything outside of the physical world that we inhabit. There is an abandonment of the transcendent, just as a, as a category for thinking about life. Okay? Now, here's what's interesting. So you, you, see, this, you see this in the polling. Um, what's interesting is millennials and Gen Z think about meaning and purpose in life just as much as older generations. They care deeply about that. Just as much as anybody else, they're thinking about meaning and purpose in life. They just increasingly don't think God has anything to do with it, that the transcendent has anything to do with it. Okay? I, so that's, there's some data around this, but there's also just the stuff you see every day when you're walking around a place like New York City. Okay? This is, so this, is, this was uh, not long ago, I was walking down the street in New York City, and I saw somebody wearing this shirt. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. And you might recognize this from the famous poem Invictus. Okay, so this is, this is a shirt I saw somebody wearing. And I want to suggest that I think it's actually sort of a good, pithy encapsulation of the way more and more young people are thinking about their lives. If you look at, if you look at a statement like this, you'd say, oh, man, that sounds so empowering. I love the idea of being the master of my fate and the captain of my soul. I love the idea of taking control of my life. I love the idea of putting my hand on the wheel and making out of myself what I want to be. There's something really empowering about that. And having, you know, I think at times in my life felt this way, it feels really good to believe this when things are going well. When you're making phone calls to people and they're returning your phone calls, when you're sending emails to people and they're returning your emails, when you're lobbing resumes at people and they say, I like what you're selling, when they're buying your products, when they want to be your friend, when they're admitting you to their school, when things are going well, when you're hitting and the answer is yes, what's your question? This feels awesome. It's great to be the master of your fate and the captain of your soul. But the problem is, and we all know this, this cuts two ways. It cuts in a great way when things are going well. But it's hard when there's, there's nothing up here. It's you. You're making meaning. You're making who you want to be. And it's hard when people aren't returning your phone calls and they're not returning your emails. And the resume is going into a black hole repeatedly. And they don't want to buy what you're selling. And I think it's even harder when it's not just that nobody's calling you back, but 
you seem to have stuck yourself into a cycle that you can't get out of. Fear has paralyzed you. Addiction has you in its grip. You know you're alienating people you care about, and that's why they're not calling you back. When, when that is happening, when the ship has wrecked, <clears throat> it's really, really hard to say, that was my hand on the wheel. See, I think this empowering statement, <clears throat> when it goes well, is great. But when it doesn't, it, le it leaves you with a tough reality. It, I think it leaves you with an inescapable reality that we don't want to think about. But if it's, your, it's really your hand on the, on the wheel, if it's really your hand on the wheel and the thing wrecks, failure isn't something that happened to you. It's your hand on the wheel. Then failure is who you are. It's not external to you. It's part of your Identity. Now, it, it, do you want to run into situations of great risk and great uncertainty if that's the implication? It doesn't surprise me. It just doesn't surprise me that when more and more people would embrace this view of life, more and more people would run away from circumstances that could increase the risk a failure. Would you want to put your identity on the line? Entrepreneurship, you know, is many things, but the one thing I think entrepreneurship is inseparable from is failure. You can't become an, you can't step into the unknown and not fail. But the one thing entrepreneurship requires, if you're going to do it, is you can't view yourself as a failure. You're going to fail, but you can't view yourself as a failure. So I think if you look at some of these trends we're seeing, maybe not as entrepreneurial, very afraid of failure, we're also abandoning this idea that there's a transcendent. It's me, it's this physical world, my hand's on the wheel. If you put those pieces together, it kind of makes sense to me. I would probably run away from entrepreneurship too. Now, what I, what I think is helpful here, and this is, where, this is the last piece and where I'll try to finish today, um, is I think it's helpful to contrast this picture, this image, that we get from a statement like this with what we see in Scripture. So here we see, I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. But the gospel gives us a very, very different image. Okay, and I just want to say, I just want to, I want to finish with this image that the gospel gives us. And the gospel says, stop pretending you're the master of, the, of your fate and the, and the captain of your soul. The gospel says, that's not the right picture for you to think about. And Jesus suggests a very different picture here. This is John 15. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So there's part of this verse that makes a lot of sense to me. 
And part of it that on its face seems confusing, but I think it's very important. So on its face, I get, I get this part. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. That makes sense. Why would God leave dead wood around? You want to get rid of that stuff. Okay, I get that. It hasn't, it hasn't earned its place in the vine. <laughs> but the part that I think is striking here is every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, I don't garden. Okay? I don't, I don't, I'm not tending a lot of plants in my, my spare time. But I, I've, um, I've asked uh, a friend of mine about this verse and how to think about pruning. And what he said to me, and, and, and you can disagree with me if you want to in this, but I thought this was striking. He said, pruning, pruning is like intentional wounding. When you prune something, you wound it. So you've got this verse that says you've got, you've got a branch bearing fruit, that doing things that it is meant to do, that feel like life to it. You know, if I can speak on behalf of the branch for a second here. It feels like life is happening, is coming forth. And in the midst of that, there's a wound. Now, I think, you know, we, we think about our own lives and in this dynamic happening and that wound, I think, for most of us is going to feel like a failure. Like, what? I was, I was in this direction. I saw a goal. Everything about me is working in that direction. I can do this. And something's happened to intervene. God, why? I don't think it's hard to see how this dynamic can feel like failure in our lives. And I think that it's that kind of failure. If your hand's on the wheel, if there's no transcendent, you'd say, well, I've fallen short. I'm not up to this. I was making myself who I wanted to be, and I couldn't do it. I'm a failure. But I love what Jesus is suggesting here. The failure is not part of your identity. It's not who you are. Because your hand's not on the wheel. The failure is actually not a threat to your identity. The failure is actually how you come to see your real identity. It's through this failure that God reveals to you who your purpose to become. That fruit that you bear, that you may bear more fruit, that you might see the fruitfulness that God has called you to. It's a radically different shift from failure as a threat to who I am to failure as a passageway to see, you know, the lens to see who God has intended me to be, that I may bear more fruit. I I don't think that, I don't think that view of the world is winning right now among the people for whom it needs to maybe be winning the most because they're going to be called into lives where the pruning is going to happen in very tangible ways very quickly. So I, you know, I started this talk um, talking about 1978. 
and a car that I bought in 19... Uh, not a car that I bought, a car that I have from 1978. And I think 1978 truly is... It stands as a reminder. It stands as a point in recent history that suggests the world has changed in some fundamental ways, and the world of our work has changed in some fundamental ways. Okay? The future, I think, doesn't belong... It doesn't belong to a world that looked like 1978. It belongs to a world that looks a lot more like the dynamic between Google and General Motors. It's a world that I think belongs to the entrepreneurial spirit. The people who can walk into uncertain and unknown places, who can persevere through challenge, and who can discover new ways to serve one another. And that's a big deal. If you think about the world you live in and how many people you'd say they're ready for an entrepreneurial life, I'm ready for an entrepreneurial life, I think the answer is it seems like a really small percentage of people. I don't feel like we live in a world where we have, we're surrounded by entrepreneurs every day. And yet I think that is probably going to be our challenge. If we want to see ourselves through this dynamic, it's going to be a world with more and more entrepreneurs. But what I think is... What I want to suggest to you today is I think actually Christians should be happier about that than anybody. And we should be more hopeful about that than anybody. And it's not because we're immune to the pain of failure. It's not because we're immune to the challenges of failure. We're not. We deal with it just as much as anyone else. But, but we also know that the failure isn't a threat to our identity. The challenges of entrepreneurship aren't a threat to our identity. They're how we come to see our identity. I think God is asking us, maybe in a new way today, to lay down, to lay down the illusion that we're the masters of our fate and the captain of our soul. And he's asking us to embrace it a different identity. Right? An identity of being cared for through challenges in life being built up through challenges in life, being, becoming more fruitful through challenges of life. Ultimately, so that in a world where we're required to find new ways to serve each other, we're able to do that, and we can withstand it, and we can even experience joy through it. So that's, that's my, we're at 1040. That leaves a couple minutes for uh, questions and answers before we, go down to the, um, before we go down to the service. But I'd love to know if you have any questions about anything that I suggested here or if I can expand on anything that I talked about, this sort of picture of the world, where we're headed, and where I think we need to go. I'd love to, love to take any questions that you might have.